Welcome to the Self-Publishing School Podcast. This is the podcast to listen to if you're an aspiring writer or an author who wants to be more successful. On this show, you'll learn how to write and launch a book successfully, all from the top authors and people just like you who are doing it at the highest level. I'm your host, Chandler Volt, the founder of Self-Publishing School, the author of the book called Published, and the CEO of selfpublishing.com. For free training on how to publish a book that sells 10,000 copies, go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. Hey, Chandler Bolt here, and joining me today is Jay Papasan. Now, Jay is the Vice President of Publishing at Keller Williams Realty Incorporated, an Austin, Texas-based real estate franchise company with over 74,000 real estate agents operating across the United States and Canada. He's co-authored multiple bestsellers, including The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, and The One Thing, which I have right here. Uh, now, before Jay co-authored uh, the best-selling book, Millionaire Real Estate, or the best-selling uh, Millionaire Real Estate series with Gary Keller, he worked as an editor for HarperCollins uh, Publishers, and there he worked on uh, some best-selling books such as Body for Life by Bill Phillips and also Go for the Goal uh, by Mia Hamm. So he's been around the block. Uh, he, he's got a lot of time in the game, and personally, uh, the one thing is, and I'm not just buttering you up, Jay, but this is, uh, this is top five books of all time for me. Uh, it's one of those books wow. that I feel like I say I have a lot of favorite books. You know, that's just when you read a lot, you do have a lot of favorite books. But this is one that I constantly go back to. And we're actually next month, our our entire company is reading it as like required reading. And we're going to have a whole book thing around it. So if you haven't read The One Thing, I uh, highly recommend it. Check it out and get it. But we're going to be talking about a lot of those principles and how they apply to writing in this interview. So Jay, welcome. Thanks for having me, man. And thanks for those gracious words on our book. Uh, it was of all the books I've worked on, it's had the most personal impact on my life. So I'm with you. So I'm happy it's been impactful for you too. That's great. And and it's funny how there's usually a direct correlation between the work that impacts you the most is usually the work that impacts others the most. So that's awesome. Yeah. It's the journey, you know, to live up to what we talk about there has been a great thing for me. Well, let's, let's kind of kick it back to the to the beginning of, of the story for you. And that's the first book that you worked on or, or really the first book that you wrote. What was that process like for you? Kind of take us through that. Uh, why did you even decide to get into this whole book publishing uh, side of things or book writing side of things as, as well? And, and take us through that process of that first book. Oh, wow. Like that's such a huge question. Why that? I tried to rip off The Hobbit when I was 12 years old on a typewriter. So <laughs> I've always loved books. I've always kind of wanted to be a writer. I used to pass short stories around at the lunch table in high school. So I was always a little bit of a nerd about books, even worked in bookstores. Um, and when I found myself, you know, having left publishing in New York, moved to Austin, Texas, um, how it started, that first book is kind of a funny story. I joined Keller Williams Realty. It was a real estate company. And I got the only writing job I could find there, which was to do the newsletter writing. And I was in the tech department. And I looked over and it was a very small company, 27 employees back then um, and 6,700 agents. Today, by the way, worldwide, we have 140,000. So in, in 15 wow. and a half years, it's been this giant rocket ride. And I look at this guy's screen and there's clearly a book cover. And it's one of our web designers. And I think he's freelancing on office hours. And I wasn't going to call him out, but I just said, hey, are you working on a book? 
because like I'm, I'm starving, you know, I'm in Austin. I'm not really in the book world anymore. I'm writing a tech newsletter. I'm kind of missing the old life. And he got a little defensive, but then he said, oh, but you know, Gary and Dave, who was our original co-author, they're writing a book and I'm helping them design covers. And I just kind of filed that away. And our office was so small. I actually ran into Gary Keller, the founder in the bathroom, like three days later. And I was like, you know, it's one of those moments in time. Thank God I said something. I was just like, hey, Gary, you know, I hear you're writing a book. Do you remember that I used to work in book publishing? And he gave me like a look and I could tell like he didn't remember. And, um, and I said, yeah, you know, I used to work at HarperCollins Publishers. And he said, come in my office, which is a really weird thing to say in the bathroom. It always reminds me of the Fonz, you know, it's like the smaller <laughs> And so we go into his office and he's between consulting calls. He like one day a month, he'll just talk with our top people. And um, he had like 15 minutes and he laid out a vision for writing 13 books. So he's always been an entrepreneur who thought that writing was going to be there. And he had tried and unsuccessfully, he tried twice to write a book and been unsuccessful. And so he lays out this vision and he pitched the first book to me, um, which was The Millionaire real estate agent is a red book. And I told him it wouldn't sell. Um, I was like, that sounds like a niche book. And, um, and he laid out his vision for this book. And he said, we're going to model five books. And it was the millionaire next door. Um, it was uh, good to great, a book I can't remember. And Bill Phillips body for life, a book I'd edited and Mia Hams go for the goal. And I showed him that two of the five books he was modeling to write his book were books that I'd actually helped. And it was like, boom, like literally the next day I was fired from my old job and I was working outside of his office. And so this first book, he wanted to write a book that would help position not only agents to be better business people, but position his company as the company who did that for people. So it was a business outcome book. That was why he was doing it. He saw me as a resource. And I'll, I'll tell you, I had to write a business plan. I had two weeks to write a business plan on how we would write a book together. And then we actually wrote that book in a little bit more than 90 days. And I think I told you, this was published in 2003. I told you this book, I said, told him it was a niche book. Um, we're about four months away from selling a million copies in an industry of a little bit more than a million. So I completely blew that call, <laughs> but that writing process. So I'm sorry, that was a little bit probably more involved than you thought, but it was one of those random moments where I got a chance to sit down with somebody and I got to jump back into the book world and so every day, you know, I was writing with someone who was a subject matter expert. I didn't know anything about real estate. So our rhythm back then, the original process was we would get together in the morning. It was me, Gary and Dave. There were three authors on the project. They had flip charts and they were outlining the book one section at a time. And we would argue our way through until we agreed on an outline. And then they would talk about stories and I would just take lots and lots of notes. And then I would go into my office at about lunchtime and I had until the next morning to write that chapter. So every day I was turning over about 14 to 15 finished pages of a book. And what was kind of cool is you look up and at the end of 90 days, not only did we know that we could all intellectually work together, but we actually had written the first draft of the book. And you know how first drafts go. We, we had some work to do but we powered our way through just through this group accountability. It was five days a week. 
Um, every morning we would outline what was the next chapter. They had 20, 30 years together between them of expertise. So it was just about me asking the right questions and them offering the right insights. And then I had to capture it. And then some days we would just edit that. And some days it would be like, this is close enough. Let's move to the next chapter. So if you, that was my first book writing experience. And it was kind of like deadline, 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 um, which is really good because I never had a chance to second guess whether I should be doing this at all. I just was thrown into the fire and we did it. Today, it. today it's a little bit different. If you want to ask questions around that, we can talk about that collaborative style. But that was full time, full on writing. Today, it looks a lot different. Got it. Got it. Cool. So let's, let's, let's kind of dive into that a little bit and then we'll zoom out and we'll take a look at how it's changed and how it's different today. So what was kind of the toughest part of that first book and what were some of the biggest mistakes that you made specifically towards writing uh, in that process? Oh, wow. Um, I think the toughest part, you know, the, the novelty wore off really quick that I was actually getting to write a book, you know, like, Oh, great. It's my full-time job. You know, you imagine the person, you know, who, comes into an inheritance and decides they're going to take a break and write their book. The novelty wore off fast if you're actually treating it like a job. Um, but what I, so the toughest part for me was being disciplined every day. And what's funny is now we've written this book and we define discipline differently, but I can vividly remember um, having this aha that my personal freedom would be dependent on my just being really focused for a couple of hours a day. And I actually wrote it in a big Sharpie on a piece of paper. I wrote discipline is freedom and I put it on the wall. And every time I was like, ah, oh, I just want to want to go outside and I just want to walk around the block and I just want to blow this off for a little while or whatever. I would look at that and go. Listen until the answer comes and I would be pretty dogged and it was a hot office. I mean, I remember it was physically uncomfortable, like there was a lot of light that came in one window and it was warm in there in the afternoon. So I remember it being a little bit of a physically tough experience, but that to me, the grind, but I can tell you, I looked up like at day 60 because the novelty wears off like in three or four weeks, but that middle third was the hardest for me to stay engaged. I felt like I was in over my head. You know, I had the imposter syndrome. I kept, you know, I'd go home and go, this is like, I'm going to bomb so bad. They're going to look up and say, he sucks as a writer. I had all of that going through my head, but somewhere in that, 60, 90 days, it came back to me and I started feeling really confident every day. And every day I looked at it as a little victory and I had enough momentum built up now that it wasn't even as hard to write. Like I just somehow, I, there was a breakthrough somewhere about 60 days mm. into it for me. Um, almost, that's, almost, like that second month. Mile, huh? almost like the 13th mile on a marathon. Yeah, yeah. I got a little bit of a second wind there and I just remember going, I can do this. Like it, it just shifted. So there was the novelty phase. There was the self-doubt grind phase. And then it's still tough work to write a book if you want to do it well. But I think that kind of kicked in somewhere in that second or third month. I started to feel like, you know what? I can do this. Look at all this that I've already done. And by that time, people had started reading parts of it. And going, you know, this is pretty good. And I, that confidence kicked in for me. Um, you asked me two questions. That was the toughest part. And the other one was the biggest mistake. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest mistake we made on that first book, and I'm looking around so I could show you, um, I'd have to leave camera, 
we, we self-published, which was not a, a mistake at all. No publisher would touch us. We got one offer on the book and it was from the American Management Association for $20,000. And I told Gary, just don't take the money. Let's do it ourselves. So I love that we self-published it. Um, and we actually sold 100,000 copies in our first year because the book showed up at the right time in the right industry from the right author. We really hit the jackpot, but the original color cover was awful. And we just didn't invest in that. I, I look back at that and I think that's the only thing I'm really embarrassed about that first publication is that we went cheap and we probably should have taken a month to really perfect that cover because that's such an entry point, especially today on Amazon where people see this little tiny sliver of your book and they're making a decision about whether they want to click on it or not. Great. That's fantastic. Now, you touched a little bit on how the writing process looks very, very different for you guys today. So how has that changed? What improvements have you made and what does that really look like today? Well, now it's, um, we treat it even more like a business. Um, we, we, we inched our way into more and more leverage. Like we're writing business books, which I'm sure is a subset of the people that you work with at the self-publishing school, right? People, nonfiction. And um, I originally did all the research and then we ended up hiring someone full-time um, Vicky Lukajic is now our um, senior project manager for research. She's been with us for, gosh, eight years now. But had the first place we got leverage in the arrangement was someone whose only job is if we had an outline, we had a concept, was go out there and look for great stories, great research, and great quotes for us to build around it. So that wasn't just on our shoulders. I don't know if you've experienced this. I'm sure some of your listeners have. You're writing the chapter and you know you're just missing a story or you're missing a, you know, some anecdote or a quote, and then you go off and you click on a link and you, st you just look up and it's three hours later and you've just been Googling through blog posts trying to find it. And so having her, and later it became two people full-time working with us, um, allowed us to never go down that bunny trail. Because when I would start a book, we would start with an outline again, we would brainstorm the heck out of it until we really felt like as much as we could, we had a process that we could maybe teach people. And then we would hand it off to our researchers and say, I want you to find stories. I want you to find quotes and I want you to find research for or against these concepts. And every single concept, I'm gonna grab one. This is the, the low tech version of a Google document that we would use now but we would like, this is leverage, right? And this was a chapter in a book. We would have a whole binder that was nothing but quotes, stories, whatever. And now this lives online, but back then we would have these binders. And so when I sit down to write, I would have this beside me and everything I needed to write that chapter was with me. And so we organized, you know, here are the building blocks. We have the idea, we have the, the framework, the structure, someone was working with us to give us more building blocks than we could come up with on our own. And then when we sat down to write, we would just divide and conquer. I'd say, you know, I really feel strongly about the leverage chapter, which is why I've got this in my office, right? And he would say, great, I'm gonna take the leads chapter and you go take this chapter and just one at a time, one person would take the lead and write the first draft. And then we would edit each other back and forth until honestly their chapters in the one thing I'm the only reason I could tell you who wrote the chapter is because I remember, but if you read it, it's such a mix of our language. Now, um, before it even got to the editor, we went through multiple, multiple drafts. I think the, the chapter that was the hardest went through almost 37 drafts.
some partial, some a couple of them just complete reboots. And that's that at a really high level is a big part of our process. And there's only um, and you just interrupt. I know I'm just having a monologue now, but <laughs> not many people ask me these questions. I love to talk about books. Um, the other thing I think you probably noticed, you remember that there's a lot of visuals in our book. Oh yeah. That, that I think honestly, from the one thing is the, the best thing you guys did visually and design wise is you called out the things that people would be underlining. You called out the things that were like takeaways and then that they were already underlined or bolded or they had a graphic or something like that. That was, um, the brilliance of Caitlin McIntosh, who was our designer. She looked at all of our favorite books and we underlined in our books. I don't know about you, but like my business books have little marginalia all through them. And we started with a lot more than we ended up. And then we backed down until it felt like it was a comfortable level. But we still get an Amazon review saying, my copy of the book is already marked up. No, that was actually a design element. Um, but like we'll we'll have a graphic. I don't know if you can see that. So there's a graphic of seven circles, which is one of my favorite pages in the book. Of our outlining process is to come up with these visuals before we ever write, and we call them models. You know, if you think about the seven habits, you know, we might have a, a visual around it, and if we have the visual right, when we go to write the chapter, that's the other piece that we start with, and I find as a writer. If I have a visual ready to go, I can describe that and it drives a lot of my writing. It helps me organize my writing because it's like in class. If I had a PowerPoint slide up and it was a, a Vim diagram of some process, I would be walking people through that in class. And now I'm writing that way, too. And it gives I don't know. I'm a writer. It, this is something I learned from Gary. And afterwards, I researched. But six out of 10 people are visual learners. Six out of 10. They happen to be reading a book, but it's not about the sounds of the words. They're looking for those lists and those graphics, and those become anchors for them. And so um, for your nonfiction writers, I would tell them that's a huge thing to explore. You know, Kindle doesn't do it justice. Like a lot of the eBooks don't do the graphics justice, but it's worth investing in because it can, a lot of your readers will gravitate to those. And that's actually, when I look on Instagram, it's the quotes and those graphics that people are constantly using to spread the word about the book. They've become viral in a certain way. Like that's like, they went beyond just teaching. Um, but in terms of the editorial process for making the manuscript, that's a lot of it. And obviously we talked about this beforehand, nothing happens if we don't block time to actually do all that I just described. So we time block every day to make sure that we're writing every day so that all those processes actually happen. Well, let's talk about that. So the, the process of time blocking, obviously something that's covered in depth in the book. For those who, who maybe haven't read the book yet, can you explain just briefly what is time blocking and then how does that translate over into writing a book and how can you use time blocking to write a book? Great. Um, the simplest description I can give of time blocking it's making appointments with yourself to do your most important work. Um, so we, we, most of the time, if I looked at someone's calendar, they have appointments there with other people. But in our research, the most productive people made appointments with themselves. And it sounds super simple. And I love that it's simple because most people, they already know how to use their calendar, right? Their Outlook calendar, whatever. And when that little reminder pops up, they say, oh, it's time for me to go to lunch now, right? 
we, we already know how to follow those command structures. We just need to do something. So I need to block time on my calendar on a regular basis to do my most important work, which as a writer is writing, right? There's two things. You need to read a lot. You need to write a lot, period. And those need to be habits. And so I'll just, I'll share one piece of research didn't make it into the book until like a second or third printing. But there was a study of people trying to take on exercise habits. They just going to exercise 20 minutes a day. And they had three groups. The control group was just told, go exercise for 20 minutes a day. And I think 38% of them did. They had a motivation group and they were told, if you exercise for 20 minutes a day, right, in the writer's world, right, they were told they would be healthy. It would be like, you'll have a novel in two years, right? And then the last group was told the same motivation, but they were called the intention group. So they were given the same information about why it was important to do this activity every day, but they had to do one additional thing. They had to write a, an intention statement on this day, at this place, at this time, I will exercise for 20 minutes a day. So the control group, 38%. The motivation group was only 35, which is weird. It actually went backwards. But then the intention group, more than 93% of them did it. So it was triple the effectiveness just because they had to, I know I want to do this. I had to I now say when and where I'm going to do it. That simple act of thinking through the logistics made it three times more likely they would follow through. So that's what we're trying to tap into. You go to your calendar, you're planning out when and where you're gonna do this activity and that makes you three times more likely to do it. And hopefully if you do it long enough and at the right times, it'll just become a habit. Like you probably brush your teeth in roughly the same ritual order every morning, right? Maybe after breakfast or before your coffee or after your coffee. I find that when you ask that question, people know exactly when they do it in their morning schedule because it's ritualized. They don't have to think about it anymore. It just happens. And I can tell you, I have an 11-year-old and a 10-year-old. It takes years to build that habit, right? I have to fight with that every morning. Did you brush your teeth, right? And it happens, but we take it for granted after it happens. And as a writer, I want sitting down to write to be like brushing my teeth. It's just automatic. That's great. That's great. Now, you talked about, this is kind of tying two things from the interview so far together. So earlier you talked about discipline and how, yes. how you had that sign that was that was like discipline is, you know, is freedom. like disciplines freedom. And then yes. you have, you have time blocking, right? Which time blocking obviously works if you do it. What are your yes. recommendations for people to, to strengthen that discipline muscle to make time blocking a priority, which in turn means make writing their book a priority within those time blocks? The vast majority, and correct me if I'm wrong, the vast majority of people who'll be watching this are people who are probably earning a living doing something else and are trying to write, correct? Yep, yep. Okay, so um, if you were like me in the beginning and I was writing fiction and everything, um, a lot of writers tend to write late at night. And I, I knew this to be a mistake, even and I continued to commit it well into my late 20s before in my early 30s working with Gary corrected this. Having kids did as well. But the habit of trying to do it late at night almost guarantees you that it won't happen regularly. It's very hard to build a habit then. So the first thing I would say is we want to do it in the morning. Um, I published a book and I'm looking to see if I've got a copy here. It was called The 11th Draft when I was at HarperCollins. And it was the um, 
uh, Frank Conroy, who at that time ran the Iowa Writers Workshop, agreed. To, I just call, cold called him and said, can we do a book together on the Iowa Writers Workshop? Can you get your best students to talk about how they came to write? And I remember editing those. And we had like Barry Hanna. We had like amazing people contribute essays. And there was this theme. They'd all been doing something else. They'd all decided they wanted to be writers. And they kept talking about how they got up at 5 a.m. and started writing. And I was like, God, man, writers are all morning people and I'm not, I must not be a writer. Well, none of them were morning people. What they understood intuitively or they figured out through trial and error is that in the morning, they have control of their time and they have energy. Even if they're sleepy because they got up early, better than not knowing how you'll feel at midnight, right? And so that habit every day, if I get up at five o'clock, get a cup of coffee, and I'm just saying five o'clock, maybe early for you is nine o'clock, but it's in that morning hours when most of your friends aren't calling you, they're not texting you, there's nothing good on TV to distract you, you won't get lost in a movie that's on TMC instead of writing that night. You'll get up, you'll have a clean mind. I find that I have a lot of creative energy once I'm awake in the morning, because if I went to sleep thinking about writing, it kind of brewed all night. And there's a lot of research that suggests that our willpower, our ability to do what we need to do is absolutely the strongest early in the morning. And it fades throughout the day. So on the days where we really don't want to do it, we, this guy can kick in our head and we can say, you know what, I'm just going to grit it out today. It's much harder to do that in the afternoon. So my first advice is to start setting your alarm clock 30 minutes earlier and trying to move some of your writing time, if not all of it, into a portion of time you can control as early in the day as possible. And the beautiful thing about that is, is if I write five pages before I even get to work, if I don't have a great day at work, I already had a great day before I got there, right? I don't know, do you, do you work out, Chandler? Do you, like, do you work out, do you do it in the mornings or anything like that? Do you have a ritual? Yeah, so I, I have my morning routine, which is, a part of that is 50 push-ups, 50 sit-ups, 50 jumping jacks. It's simple, but it's on Boom. autopilot. Well, what's cool is you're, you're, this habit of doing some exercise, you're launching your day with it. And it's like the whole miracle morning thing, right? What I love about that is my wife and I work out in the mornings, right? We have a trainer that shows up at our house. If I work out in the morning and I have a cheeseburger for lunch, I don't really feel guilty, right? I can cheat a little bit because I already know I did my number one health thing. If you are pushing your writing into the day, you don't get that kind of sense of, of righteousness throughout the rest of the day. I love that feeling of knowing my number one thing, the thing that's leading my dreams, right? I've already knocked it out. I've done that thing. It's a really great habit. So I can't tell you why Barry Hannah or any of those other writers did it, but just writer after writer, I just kept reading. They were waking up in the morning and doing it before the rest of the house was awake. And that's how they wrote their first book. And then eventually they got to where they could write all the time. And a lot of them kept their morning hours. I think Hemingway wrote a lot of times he'd get up, have his coffee, he'd go in and write in the morning. And he would start with a, an unfinished sentence from the day before. Um, I got to talk to um, guy, who's the guy who wrote Lonesome Dove? Um, he would write every day and he would just write um, a certain number of pages. And it was always in the morning. And he said his neighbors thought he was unemployed because he would always be wandering around and playing tennis in the afternoon. But he'd already <laughs> finished his job, right? So That's I do think there's a pattern there. 
and mm -hmm. we all mm -hmm. want to be the exception. Um, but I'm going to try to learn from these people who've already won all the awards and, and start where they start left off and then customize. But that was a hard pill for me to swallow because I did not, until my kids showed up and made me wake up in the morning, I didn't become a learning person until after that, really. Hey, Chandler Bolt here. I hope you're loving this episode so far. It's time to go from inspiration to implementation. All right, so if you've learned something, we want to help you implement what you've learned with your book. So what I want you to do right now is go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a publishing consultation with one of the experts on my team. We'll talk about your goals for your book, your dreams, your challenges, your next steps, and we'll start putting together a plan. All right, so go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a call with the team. Let's see how we can help with your book. It's time to implement so is that what changed for you? Like, were you consistently writing in the afternoon or at night? Or did it take moving that chunk of writing to the morning for you to finally be consistent at it? Bingo. I was very inconsistently writing fun stuff at night. And that was more about like having fun, right? It felt like an, like an entertainment thing, a hobby. But the moment I started doing it in the mornings, earlier in the day, um, it felt much more serious. And I think I took it more seriously. And it certainly, that's where the consistently showed, it, the consistency showed up. Now I get paid today. Like my full-time job is writing books. So today my time block is a little bit later in the day because I have the liberty of that, right? But it's still going to happen before noon. I'm going to try to get that really important stuff done. Maybe starting about 9, 30, 10, I, I clear the decks. I meet with a few key staffers. I answer some emails, shut all of that down. Now I know that there's nothing... There's no nagging conscious in my mind and I'm going to dive into that work and my afternoons can be for meetings and everything else. So have the liberty like me of this is what I get paid to do. I get to do this full time. I still want you to do it in the morning. You just now can sleep until six, right? You don't have to get up at 4 a.m. Um, but I would still tell you to do it in the mornings when you have that mental energy because it's the habit every day and getting through those bad days that really builds your confidence. Got it. Now, for you, how do you go through clearing the deck at the beginning of the day? So saying key meetings, emails and all that stuff. How do you do that and then not have that bleed in, like bleed over into your writing time or push back your writing time or even take up space in your mind during your writing time? Well, the last part I can't guarantee, right? You never know. Like you got a tough email from your mom making you feel guilty because you didn't send her a present. I don't know. Like I'm just making that up. Like Maybe your wife or somebody or a boss has sent you something that can linger. Um, I set a time limit. So the first thing I do when I come in the morning is I have a paper calendar and very few things on there. But the most important thing is whether or not today is a writing day. Um, there's some days that aren't because they're travel days. But those are my writing block days. And I don't even have to write down the hours anymore because I know that a writing block starts at this time and it ends at this time. Usually a little bit before 10 to 2 and if we're really in a writing crunch, I'll write from 10 to 4 in the afternoon if I have to. But I know that I'm starting before, like two hours before lunch break. Um, but I will look at my calendar, make sure that I know what my agenda is. And on there will be like, today I'm writing this section, right? I have my, this is where I map out my life, is my calendar. I am time blocking those activities. And so I'll open up social media, I'll open up email, and I'll usually use egg timer, um, and I don't have it open, but I think if you just Google egg timer, it's a free timer 
and I'll give myself 20 minutes for each max. And so all of the responding in the world is going to happen in about 30 to 40 minutes. And you'd be amazed how productive you can be if you have a clock ticking down. So I think they call it batching. I'm just putting an artificial limit on how much time I'm going to give that activity because otherwise work will grow. Email will grow to fill the time you give it. You can literally spend four hours in there. But if mm -hmm. I know I've only got 20 minutes, I'm going to answer the most, I'm going to look for and answer the most important emails. I'm going to forward or put off the other ones and then I'm going to get out. So to me, just start a clock, right? I'm going to give myself 20 minutes and I've taught this. We just brought a hundred people through our founding members of the time course. And we walked a hundred people and we taught them how to batch. It was like, hallelujah. I finally feel like I've got that email thing off my back. <laughs> and I actually have found research. I mean, since we even did the course in the book, that people who only check their email three times a day feel just as connected as the people who do it. Most people on average do it 15 times a day. They're just in there almost every hour during the day. Um, and they're getting distracted that many times, right? So three times a day, I have a batch in the morning. When I break for lunch, I usually will eat at my desk. I will check back on social media. Like maybe I posted about a new interview with you, right? On my Facebook page. I'll see if there's any interaction to nurture and then I'm gone. And I'll probably do both email and everything in that 20 minute break, then I'm back to writing. And then I'll check in at the end of the day. And those are my three primary times that I will allow myself to go into the time machine that's email. Because I, I can just tell you, that's where everybody else's agenda lives. And I want my agenda to be going out in the world, not to be in my inbox. Mm, love it. Love it. You're preaching to the choir on that, Jay. Okay, good. Awesome. Good. So I want to I want to take a little step back and we talked about this a little bit earlier but on the back on the time blocking thing what would be your advice for people who it's I've got kids I've got a job I've got my business I've got clients that pop up I've got emails like I have to respond to emails before 10 a.m. or or any of those things that might just bump our time block like what would be your recommendation to be to help with that to make sure that your time block remains the one thing and that you continue to have time for that? Well, great question. Um, we actually have a saying just for that. And, and this is, comes from the fact that I, for my big things, I still put them on a paper calendar. I put my most important business meetings, like with my, my stakeholders, like we had our state of the company meeting with Gary and our VP of publishing, just the three of us to talk vision for two hours today, like that level meeting, my writing days, my birthdays and family vacations. Like that's all that goes on this calendar. But that writing is my one thing. And so what we say is, if you erase, you must replace. So the whole idea is um, sometime around November, often I'll get a copy of Gary's calendar for the next year. And he will be suggesting our writing days, the days that we'll be meeting to write together, usually from January to August. So sometime in November or December, we're plotting out based on our goals, how many writing days do we need? And then it's just a matter of executing. And so I have an average of 18 to 20 writing days a month that I've blocked off. And if I erase one, because if your kid's sick, that's the priority, right? Don't be sitting there trying to, you know, write your book while he's, you know, coughing and you know, pay attention, be where you need to be. That, that's life happens. But if I erase that day, 
my job is to go steal back a day from something else. So I may be canceling appointments, right? I may be saying, you know what? I really wanted to take the afternoon off, but I'm behind on deadline. Whatever my script is, I need to cancel. I'm very sorry. And I'm going to try to get that back because otherwise you're just taking it for granted that you're going to get another day back somewhere and get to finish that project. It's just not going to happen that way. You got to, if you erase, you must replace. And the other thing is, I, I didn't list all of the distractions that you mentioned. Almost all of those happen during work hours. So for most of your listeners, doing it in the morning before they're at work, nobody's going to come by their desk. Nobody's going to call them. Who calls you at home at 730 in the morning? Nobody. Right. So most of those things that we think of as distractions don't exist if you're willing to make a battle like your workout. Right. It doesn't have to be four hours. You can make great progress with just 20 minutes a day. You'll have to show up and get to work. But if you had an hour every morning, how much progress could you make in writing your next book? If you wrote two pages a day, you could easily crank out a book in one year. Easily right? With a lot of editing. Mm -hmm. And if you had an hour every day and you were in a rhythm, you did it every day, you could crank out two great pages a day. I guarantee you almost everybody can build up to that. So it's not six hours. You just, you just say this time is consecrate, right? It just, it's not, it's sacred. It's not going to be violated. And if that's your one thing, you make your stand around defending it. So if you can do it early, if it has to happen in vulnerable time, then if you replace, if you erase, you must replace. And then I think you remember in the book, we also talk about the strategy of building a bunker. Do you want to go down that rabbit hole? It's useful, but I didn't know if we want to go that deep. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Okay, so one of the things we talk about is, you know, you've got it on your calendar. Now you've got to do it. And our, we encourage people to find a bunker for this work. So where's a place that you can go and be productive and it's naturally protected from distractions. And we interviewed lots and lots of folks and read. And so remember when I was in Paris, there was a hotel where Hemingway would sometimes go to write because it wasn't his home and he was not distracted there, right? And so um, Anne and Chip Heath, I don't know if you know them, they wrote Made to Stick and some great books, but I think it was Dan, he's like an email addict. So his bunker was to go to a cafe with a laptop but he had to actually have a laptop where they pulled the wireless card out because otherwise he would get on the internet. <laughs> but if he's there, he's like on a little internet free Island, right? And he would actually be productive. So ask yourself, if I'm going to be doing this activity, where is a place that I can go where I already know that I will be really distraction free. So that's your bunker. And I've really talked to like salespeople. They might be making sales calls. I've talked to people who literally, will sit in their car outside the office to do these activities because they know once they get in, they're vulnerable. They'll go to an empty conference room in the basement. I had an, an EA who helped us edit a best-selling book because for it became two hours a day, but in the beginning it was just an hour. She would go to our basement to an empty room and write there because nobody could find her. So find your bunker, step number one. Um, two is store provisions. So if you look in my desk, you can't see it, but like I've got a bowl of power bars. Uh, I've got noon tablets so that I have all my water stuff. I've got aspirin. I've got dictionaries. I've got everything I need to write right here. 
And the goal is if my door is closed and my headphones are on and I'm writing and I'm in a groove, if I need something, it's within arm's reach. Um, because the problem is if I decide that I didn't have enough coffee and I leave my bunker into the exposed open area, right, to go get coffee, what's going to happen? Someone's going to go, oh, Chandler, I was hoping you'd step out. It'll just be a minute. Do you got a second? And it's never a second and it's never a minute. Mm -hmm. And research will show if you shift, it can be as much as 30 minutes later for you to get your focus back. Mm. And we call that getting sniped. And if you get sniped, it's because you left your bunker, right? Your bunker's safe. So store provisions. So that's step number two. Step number three is sweep for mines. And that just means in your environment, if there's something that's going to distract you, get rid of it. So for most of us, it's going to be our cell phone. And I love Apple because now if you swipe up from the bottom, do you have an Apple phone? Mm -hmm. There's a little half moon. Do you know what that does? Oh, yeah. Do not. You can make exceptions so that your wife or your significant other can call through that, right? And if it's an emergency, but now all those notifications, like my kids have all kinds of apps on my phone and I don't need little things buzzing saying, feed the dinosaur. I need to stay focused on my work. So that's one of the ways I swept for mines. Another one was I have two browsers. You can't see my two screens here. But um, I'm on Firefox now, and when I'm interacting with the world, that's what I use. When I'm writing, I pull up Chrome. And on Chrome, I have zero login saved. I have not, if I wanna go to Facebook on that, I have to go to Facebook, I have to log into Facebook, I have to go through all the steps. So I have barriers between me and distraction. So there's nothing gonna pop up. I've turned off all of my notifications. So if there's a new email, it doesn't pop up and let me know it. And even the little number that shows up, that red number that gets higher and higher and higher on your little email app, it doesn't show up because I took the time to find it. So I'm looking at my environment and that for me is what I had to get rid of. Those are my minds. So you know yourself, your writers in your group know themselves, sweep for minds. And the last step, it's four steps, find a bunker, store provisions, sweep for minds, enlist support. So all the people who have a right to enter your bunker, your boss, your coworkers, um, if you're writing from home, maybe it's your spouse or your kids, you need to tell them why this is really important for you to be undisturbed. So honey, kids, um, when I'm writing, when that door is closed and I put the red ribbon on it, whatever your symbol is, says stay away, can you please respect that? And hopefully you can communicate it, not just in terms of what you'll get from it, but what they'll get from it. It's like, do you want your dad to fulfill his dreams? You know, do you want your dad or your mom? Like, can you convey the outcome of your finishing this book in a way that's a win for them? Because that's how they'll get buy-in. And that's usually how I coach people, if you can, to enlist their support. And when I've done that well, like I had a great assistant, Teresa. And if she saw me goofing off during writing time, she would come in, grab whatever it was and say, I've got that covered. You go back to writing. She didn't even ask permission anymore because I'd given her permission. And if she saw me having a bad day, she would try to help me make it a good day. So that's about if you want a time block and you really want to do it seriously, then go find a bunker so that you can execute not all your work, but that most important work for writing a book 
that writing time, find a protected place to do that. That's, that's just huge for people. Love it. Now, I want to, I want to quickly touch on multitasking and switching costs. Um, what are they? <laughs> how can they affect uh, getting your writing done? And what can you do to stay against them? Which I, I think you somewhat just covered, but let's touch on that for a second. Well, um, gosh, there's so much. We actually came up with like seven costs in multitasking. Um, it's a whole chapter in our book, and I love it. But as a writer, um, most of what we're doing in a book is we're going deep. And if we're constantly being distracted, it's really hard to stay deep and go deep. So the cost to your intelligence is huge. So I'll just cite a few things. So first, what is multitasking? Multitasking is actually switch tasking, okay? If you look at the research, they call it switch tasking. So I'm writing, um, I'm on the first page, right? I'm writing my novel, you know, in the beginning, whatever, blah, 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 blah. I'm three paragraphs in it and a distraction enters my environment. Well, the decision to switch is instantaneous. Squirrel, and I'm, my focus is there. We've been programmed since the dawn of time to notice distractions. Otherwise, the saber-toothed tigers would have gotten us back in the, the prehistoric age and we'd never be here. The problem is, you then have to switch, reorient to the new rules of the game. And so switching between the new, the rules of writing my book to two kids arguing over a toy, right? Those are different rules. And it can take as long as 25 to 100% longer, depending on how much you're going back, to switch. So have you ever had that moment where you're really focused on something? Maybe it's even a ball game on TV. Someone comes in the room and is talking to you. You know they're talking to you. You know that the words are aimed at your ears and your ears alone, but you have no idea what they're saying. And you'll do something like, I'm sorry, what did you just say? That's reorientation. So it happens all day long when you're bouncing up to Twitter or Facebook or checking an email, right? You're just going between one screen and the other. The decision to switch is so fast, but what we're unconsciously doing is reorienting and reorienting. So let's just take that first example. There's that little bit of lost time I'm not aware of. And then when I come back to writing and I'm on the third paragraph, what do I have to do before I can write that paragraph? I have to read the first two to know where I was. And so we don't even call that lost time, but it happens all day long. And so researchers will tell you, if you allow yourself to be in an environment that's distracted, roughly 28% of every day is lost to this reorientation time. So almost a quarter of your week is lost. So first off, the cost of multitasking is time, which to me is your most precious resource, right? It's the only thing we don't get more of. If I don't do it this year, it's not like I get a year added to the end of my life to go do it later. I might not get that year. So I've got to invest that time wisely. And then it actually makes you dumb. All right, so this is a fun study. They didn't make it into the book because we found it after the book, but he actually did a study of um, three sets of IQ tests. This is a guy writing his dissertation at the King's College in London, I believe, in 2009. So there's a group of people who took an IQ test that were focused, and he compared the results of that to a group of people who took an IQ test while juggling emails and phone calls. They're multitasking. So they're trying to take an IQ test, and they're being interrupted by phone calls and emails. And then the third group, which is kind of hilarious that they even had this group out there, was a group of people who took an IQ test when they were stoned, like marijuana, right? They're completely high. <laughs> well, the reason I hear about this and why it was like kind of a brief sensation on the news is that unsurprisingly, the people who were focused while taking this IQ test 
scored 11 IQ points higher than the other two groups. And 11 IQ points is like a giant leap for mankind, okay? What shocked people is the people who were stoned on average scored six IQ points higher than the people who were sober but multitasking. So it slows you down and it dumbs you down. And as a writer, it's okay to be a little bit slow, but most of us are impatient to get this thing done. And you certainly can't afford to be dumb while writing a book. That's the whole, that defeats the whole purpose of writing a book, right? So I could give you 10 more reasons, um, but I will stop with one more on multitasking. And that is if you switch to a secondary task while doing your primary, the longer you're distracted, the less likely you are to ever get back to your work. And that's how loose ends show up in our life. So I know I sound like I'm railing, but if this is a huge goal for people, I don't, I'm not telling them to stop multitasking all the time. But when you're trying to write, that, that, that real core of being a writer is that maybe some days it's only 15 minutes that you're really productive at the keyboard. Make an effort not to multitask then. And the biggest way to do that, I think I hit it, is in your writing bunker, remove the things that could distract you. And by being in a bunker, you've kind of isolated yourself from the people who might distract you. But just making a stand, like you're gonna multitask all day long while you're waiting for the movies or whatever, I don't care. But don't do it when your writing life is at stake, because it is. Love it. And the last thing I wanna to touch on is, is the four thieves. Now, this is something you, you obviously talk about in the book, uh, the one yep. thing. And so I want you to just briefly talk about what those four thieves are uh, and how they could keep you from getting your writing completed and then what we can do uh, to kind of hold all, hold those four thieves at bay. Okay. So the, the four thieves of productivity, right? And this is the stuff that once you've made these commitments, that kind of undoes you. Um, the number one for most people is the inability to say no. And, you know, in the time we have without going just too far in there, I would just tell people, um, if you, if you know someone who got married and stayed married, they understood when they said yes to this person, that saying yes to them meant say they were saying no to everything else. And the challenge we have in our life is as important as we say things are, when we say yes to them, we don't acknowledge that saying yes to that means no to this other stuff. So if you're saying yes to self-publishing your first book, then you have to say yes to your writing time. And that means you're saying no to watching TV. You're saying no to talking to your friends on the phone. You're saying you know, no to binging on Netflix. Whatever it is, especially other people, really take that close to heart. So saying no, we should have a right to say that with the relationships that matter most to us. So you have to understand that that's a real challenge. Um, the other one that's probably just as big is the fear of chaos. I group most of the world out there into people who are people oriented or they like things and ideas. And so if you're people oriented, your challenge is saying no. Um, I would say that most writers are actually things and idea oriented. And so the challenge for them is that if you're doing your one thing and you're saying no to all this other stuff, you're seeing that the bills haven't been paid and you're seeing all the things in your environment that could be cleaner and the chaos that piles up when you're, you know, you're thinking of all the emails that are unanswered. And that's what I, we call chaos. 
And the longer you're in your time block writing, and I described it, on, on deadline for the one thing, there were days that we were writing for six hours. I mean, six grinding hours of work. And when you're in that environment and you know that your business is still happening out there, I'm a things systems kind of person. It's terrifying to me. I know that there's fires I need to put out. And so it takes an active faith to know that if this is really my one thing, like none of that matters if we don't do this book. So you have to stick with it. So that's as much as about awareness that if you're that kind of person like me, you have to make peace with the fact that success is going to be a little bit messy. The fact that you've made the commitment to write means that some things are not going to be done as neatly and as nicely or in as timely a fashion as you would like. But the most important thing is getting done. So that's your first two, no and chaos. Um, number three, poor health habits. Um, in the context of business, if you don't take care of your body, you know where are you gonna live? Um, I'll say this in the writing context. Um, I got a chance to hang out with some serious writers. I, like, um, you know, I worked with Barry Hanna on an essay, um, Dennis Johnson, um, some different people who were big writers in their day. And a lot of them had suffered from addiction. So if you think that the right frame of mind to get into writing is with a cigarette and a glass of scotch. Um, and I used to pretend like writing fiction, I needed a keyboard and a glass of scotch. Like that was the romantic idea of a writer because um, it's often portrayed that way in movies, right? Mm -hmm. What you're doing to yourself is you're training your creative brain to show up when those elements are in play. So those are unhealthy habits to build around writing. And I would encourage you not to do that. Um, I managed to, you know, I gave up smoking in the nineties. God bless my wife for encouraging me on that. And, um, I did not give up whiskey, but I sure as heck don't drink whiskey when I'm writing. Right. Um, that's something for the weekends or for a big night, but you don't do, make sure that your writing habits are healthy. That's where I would stop on that without going too deep down that wormhole. Um, it's a sedentary job. So hopefully like you, like, what did you say? You do push ups, sit-ups like that. Mm. Just have a routine so that you have energy so that when you sit down, your mental energy is not, you're not gonna run out before you're done writing. Um, and the last one is your environment does not support your goals. And so the last, that's the last of the four thieves. And I would tell you, there's two things to pay attention to. There's your physical environment. And we talked about that with your bunker, right? That's hugely important. And the other one is the people in your environment. Um, and I'm gonna misquote this study a little bit, but there was a study that said that if your close friends, and this could even be through Facebook, people you interact with a lot, even on just Facebook, are obese, the odds that you will become obese go up by like 40%. Because who we hang out with informs what we consider to be normal and acceptable. And so if you're hanging out with people who are not going to have the discipline to do the things they need to do in life, they may not be encouraging you to keep your commitments. So hopefully your spouse, the people, your significant other, can they get behind this activity? A lot of the, the, the worst stories I hear from small business people and writers who come to me for advice is that the people they love the most are not supportive of this. And so enlisting their support becomes a huge part of their journey so that those people, they're either, you're somewhat removing yourself from them so you can do this. That might be a friend that maybe has bad habits that you don't want to rub off on you. You can still love them, but you may not spend as much time with them, but hopefully you can get those dear relationships in. So I get people to look at both. What's your environment like? And are the relationships that you really 
care about the most? Are they supportive of this? Are they encouraging you? Because man, writing, writers are neurotic enough on their own. Like I always think I suck. You know, we've sold almost two and a half million copies of our books now. And I still have daily crisis of content, you know, of conscience, like, oh, are we any good or not? It just happens. That's what writing is. It's a vulnerable thing. So you really need people around you to support you. Got it. Two final quick questions. Yes, sir. Uh, one is random and one is like a parting piece of advice. Uh, and, and this is something that the first one, just one that came to me throughout the interview. And, and that's why, you know, you guys are scaling a massive company. And I get the real estate books because that's kind of specific to your industry. Why all these books and especially why books like the one thing who, who that might not even, you know, it doesn't really even relate to real estate except for maybe the, the process of like being a more effective realtor. Like why do this and how does this affect with your guys? How does this tie in with your guys' one thing and where you're headed? Well, this is really about um, the vision that Gary and, and, and I and the writers that we laid out. I mean, I've, I don't mind. I, I love writing real estate books and I love that we've been able to really make a difference for people there. But when I look at my favorite books of all time, they're usually going to be novels and some of my favorite self-help books. That's just the honest truth. Right. And so Gary's the same way, you know, he's got this, this shelf of his favorite books of all time. And I don't know that there's a real estate book on that shelf. Um, real estate is a niche within business. Um, the one thing we saw is a productivity book that would allow us to reach an even larger audience. Because I think ultimately, um, I think we have a goal as teachers who happen to be writing books to impact as many people as we can. Um, I can measure that through book sales. Um, you know this as well as I do. That's not where you're ultimately gonna make a lot of money, right? But you can make a difference by writing books. You can change the way people see the world. You can change the way they behave. And so we wanted to look and ask the question, we felt like by building the number one real estate company in the world, we would have a platform, not just talk to real estate, to say, you know what, that's a business that got built. We can now talk to a larger audience with some authority and we incubated out of real estate into the larger group. So our goal there is really just to have a larger audience, right? Can we have a bigger impact? And to my delight, I've heard from preachers. I've heard from chiropractors. It's an approach to success and writers, right? It's an approach to success that works in a lot of different ventures. So it's become a work and a life book, which hallelujah is what we hope for, but you can't always control, right? You just write mm -hmm. the best book that you're capable of and you do what you can to control that, but know that how well people accept it and where they take it into their lives is up to them. So hopefully I answered your question. Yep. Yep. We wanted to go there. That makes sense. Now, fi final question, final party, parting piece of advice uh, for someone who's maybe, you know, they're thinking about writing their first book. What would be your advice to them? First step. Um, you know, the number one thing people send to me is said, I need to write a book. And I usually say, why? And they'll say, because everybody tells me to write a book. And my immediate question is what qualifies them to tell you you need to write a book? Um, I usually say, if you're gonna start down this path, it's a path of commitment, right? It takes some amount of commitment to write a book. You need to have your heart in it. Don't be doing it just because people told you you need to do it. You need to want to share something with other people because I find that those are the writers that I enjoy reading the most. You know, they're living their work. So 
first off, internalize why you want to do this. It's not for other people. It's okay to want to do this for yourself. Even if it's about making money, if you want to earn a living that way, there's nothing to be ashamed of by wanting to write as a profession. That's totally cool. So embrace it for yourselves and then start with the smallest possible commitment, which might be every day or five days a week, whatever your schedule is, I'm going to commit to writing for X amount of time or X amount of words and make that a ritual. And the people I've seen, they've done those two steps are the ones who actually end up going through it. They've made the internal commitment. This is why I need to write a book. And they're clear about that. Not only what, what it'll do for the world, but why is that important to me? And then where the rubber hits the road is time at a keyboard, right? And so sitting down to express your ideas with or without an editor or a ghostwriter, however that is, that writing time, it's got to happen. And it just needs to be something that's almost a ritual in your life. It just, every day, you know that it's time to do it and you get to it. And it can take a while to get there, but habits form if you make that commitment. Like I told you, after like two months, and we have some research in the book, it's about 66 days, you can build a habit around the most important things in your life. So you can do anything for 66 days. Why not try to do this as a challenge, a 66-day challenge to just write every day and see where that takes you? Love it. Jay, this has been a fantastic interview. Uh, I really appreciate this and just... All kinds of great productivity advice, great writing advice, uh, just just all across the board. Thank you for coming on today. Where where can people go before we head out? Where can people go to find out more about you, what you're up to, uh, your books, all that good stuff? Um, I would tell them to visit theonething.com with the number one. Um, and if they're serious about time blocking, to, to maybe visit timeblockingmastery.com. Um, those would be the two places. Everything you need to know is on theonething.com, and that's with the number one. Love it. Jay, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I love what you do. Keep helping writers, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of the Self-Publishing School Podcast. I know there's so many places that you can be spending your time. There's other podcasts that you could be listening to, YouTube channels that you could be watching. Uh, so thank you so much. It means the world. Now, I want you to do three things right now if you found this episode all right, number one, I don't know if you know this, but we've got a YouTube channel. It's a companion channel to this podcast. All the video versions of the episode are on the YouTube channel. So number one, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Number two, if you're listening to this podcast, wherever, whether this is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Number two, I want you to subscribe to this podcast right now so you don't miss a future episode. Uh, and then number three, this is probably the most important, uh, leave a review on the podcast. All right, reviews are super important and help the podcast get discovered by other people. Uh, so number three, leave a review on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the next episode. If you're on the fence about scheduling a publishing consultation call with my team, maybe you're not quite ready uh, for that, I've got some free training that I think will be really helpful for you. All right, all you have to do is go to register to sign up. Go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. When you do, you're also going to get a free digital copy of my new book, Published. And on that training, you're going to learn the next step, so how to implement with your book. So how to write, how to publish, how to launch successfully. So go to register right now at selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. I'll see you there.